we now are seeing ourselves as living systems and our communities as living systems. The willingness to sit down and to find in nature your model, measure, and mentor, there's a new openness to that. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good. And my guest today is the wonderful Janine Benyus. She is an author, an innovation consultant, and a self-proclaimed nature nerd. She may not have coined the term biomimicry, but she certainly popularized it in her 1997 book, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. Since the book's release, Janine has evolved the practice of biomimicry, speaking around the world about what we can learn from the genius that surrounds us. In 1998, Janine co-founded the world's first bio-inspired consultancy, Biomimicry 3.8, formerly the Biomimicry Guild, 3.8 being 3.8 billion years, bringing nature's sustainable design to 250 plus clients, including organizations like Boeing and Colgate-Palmolive, Nike, General Electric, and many more. In 2006, she co-founded the Biomimicry Institute, mobilizing tens of thousands of students and providing those practitioners with the world's most comprehensive biomimicry-inspired database, Ask Nature, to use as a starting place. So join me in a wonderful conversation with Janine Benyus. Hey, Janine. Welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right, and thanks for taking some time to be with us. There's many things I love about you, many things I love about your work. And, and one thing I want to talk about right now is that you're a systems thinker. You're curious not just about what makes nature thrive, uh, how the gecko sticks to the ceiling and the butterfly makes its colors, but human systems and economic systems and social systems. And so you're, you're thinking about how all of these might fit together. We have a design problem, you say, not a problem of substance, that our question should not be how can we control and extract for human benefit, but how can we learn from nature to benefit one another? You know, you know how much I and everybody wants this to be how humans inhabit the earth. So this may be phrased wrong, but but one question I have is where is biomimicry winning as per se beyond projects to whole systems? And I'm also wondering what clues biomimicry has for pandemics. Did you watch the last two years shaking your head and going like, there's a better way to address this. And another question is, do you think about the social and political systems? Does biomimicry have something to offer nations that still solve our problems with shock and awe. So help us, Janine, to turn our attention toward what is life-affirming, even as all around us, it seems to be going toward denying and destroying. We need your medicine. So tell us what you see emerging. What could possibly go right? And over to you. What a fabulous question. Um, yeah, I'm a fan of not shock and awe, but flock and awe, really. That's what I'm hoping. Your question about biomimicry has been, you know, that's been my my life for the last 30 years, almost 25 years ago, the book came out, but I started collecting for it before that. It was my sixth book. I, and my other books, I'm a natural history writer, and I wrote about ecosystems. I wrote about communities and how well they work. And then I thought, shouldn't we learn from them? 
And so I found people starting to do that. And I wrote this book. And then very quickly, unbeknown, you know, very surprisingly to me, I went back to write my next book. But the phone started ringing. And it was companies, municipalities, inventors, design firms saying, could you bring a biologist over to the design table and help us? And I said, well, yeah, I don't do, you know, EPA stuff. I'm not going to count the dead fishes and frogs. And, but upstream in the design challenge, that would be interesting to tell you how life works and then see if we could redesign things along those lines. And that's what, what started um, our company, which at that point was called Biomimicry Guild. Now it's Biomimicry 3.8. So we've been doing this for 3.8 billion years of good, good ideas. And we've been doing this now for about 25 years. And I always felt like I was, you know, when we would bring in biological living systems models into these big corporations sometimes, it was a stretch. You know, we had internal champions to get us the contracts to come in, but, you know, people were highly skeptical. So to bring Mother Nature into some of these halls of power, it was an honor, but it was difficult. And there was skepticism. And now, 25 years later, you know, we've been walking towards this horizon. And I feel like this horizon is now walking towards us. Mm-hmm. And it's all these people now lined up on that horizon, walking towards us and saying, tell me again how the natural world works. That's what I see. That's what's possibly going right is the fact that we understand ourselves as living systems. We understand our organizations, our communities as living systems. That was not a given 25 years ago. We were still in that machine metaphor. And now we understand ourselves as living systems. And we also have developed a worldwide or at least, you know, when, when I, I'm centering myself in Western industrial culture, because, and I do remedial biology for, for us. So I'll, I'll say that. So, you know, we've, we now are seeing ourselves as living systems and our communities as living systems and finally realizing, hey, there are living systems out there that are 3.8 billion years in the making. And they've learned how to live here gracefully on this planet over the long haul. And so the willingness to sit down and to find in nature your model, measure, and mentor, um, there's a new openness to that. In short, people are just much more willing to look to the natural world for their strategies, their solutions. Nature as, you know, consulting nature as a guide for how shall we live here and the rest of nature, I should say. And you know, I see that as an inflection point. I see that as a change because I've watched the resistance fall to absolute welcoming and, and how else can we do this? How else can we bring these natural, these living system principles to the rest of our company? So during the pandemic, you know, we thought just like every other company and we, we have a company, we have a, we have a company, a for-profit consultancy, and then we have a nonprofit uh, the Biomimicry Institute, and now we have a, a university center where we teach a master's of science in biomimicry. All three of those organizations 
we assumed we'd have to do emergency, you know, furloughs and whatnot, and the opposite has happened. So during this last couple of years of the pandemic, you know, our project work has tripled. Our funding has doubled. Um, the number of people signing up for Masters of Science in Biomimicry has increased enormously. So, so yeah, there's, there's definitely something going on. And the work, the work that we've been doing, you know, we have product design as one of our verticals where we look at, you know, reducing material use and reducing toxicity and reducing energy using how we design a product, how we manufacture it, how we distribute it. We try to do biomimicry at the level of form and process and ecosystem. But we also have a built world of practice. And that's what's really taken off. So it's biomimicry at a systems level. So we are designing everything from, you know, and we work with an architecture firm, HOK, and an engineering firm, Jacobs Engineering, and a modeling firm, uh, ESG. And what we design, we're designing everything biomimetically from a building and its site all the way up to a city or even a region. And... What, what we were, were asked is what would be, what, what's a biomimetic building? What's a biomimetic district? What's a biomimetic city? And the answer for us is that it's a city that performs as well as the healthy ecosystem next door, as, as well as that wildland. In other words, we look and say, what if, a, what if the city wasn't here? What kind of forest would it be? What kind of prairie would it be? what kind of grassland or step. And we say, what would the, when we say performance, we mean, we mean what, what kind of beneficial flows would this ecosystem be producing? Because ecosystems are generous, right? And can our cities be as generous as the ecosystem next door? And then we say, well, let's actually measure they say, well, what's a, you know, how do you know a healthy ecosystem? The way you know it is by what it exhales. In other words, you know, I live here in Western Montana and, and I'm in the Bitterroot Valley and I'm surrounded by wilderness. And there are these huge canyons of 27 canyons, crashing rivers coming down. And I look up at those mountains and I'm constantly seeing an exhale of goodness. Those wild ecosystems produce cleaner air. Air comes in and goes out cleaner than when it came in. Water comes out cleaner than when it came in. Wildlife pours into the valley. We've got all this goodness, right, that we're living, we're basking in. And the question we're asking is that, what are we doing in return? Like, do we return that favor? So a biomimetic city would be one that the watershed is better off because we're there, because we're giving away, we're producing wildlife support, we're sequestering carbon, we're cycling nutrients, we're cleaning the air and sending it downwind cleaner, we're cleaning the water and sending it out cleaner than it was when it came in. What if we tasked ourselves through design, through aspirational goals, and through design to produce ecosystems 
services, all of them, all of them, you know, and so that's what we've been doing for the last 10 years. Um, we've been playing with this idea. And then finally, now we've actually gotten to the point where we have a very, a very, very sophisticated ecological model, which allows us to go into a reference habitat, measure it for the goodness that it's producing per acre, per hectare, how much clean water is it producing? How much water is it storing? How much cooling is happening? How much noise is it buffering? And then we go to the built environment site and we do our measurement there and you've got the current performance of the built site, which is usually not as high as the ecological performance. And then with design, you try to try to close that gap so that over the years, your site becomes functionally indistinguishable from the wildland next door. It's incredible work. It changes everything about how people design. We're asking the buildings and the infrastructure, the roads, the sidewalks, to also produce ecosystem services, as well as planting trees and green roots. So we're saying, if you want water storage on your site at the same level as the wildland next door, you have to store this many gallons per year. How are we gonna do it? We're gonna do it with green roofs, with blue roofs, with rainwater harvesting, with permeable pavement. We're gonna take out the parking lots, put in permeable pavement. That's one ecosystem service. Then you've got carbon sequestration. You're going to put mass timbers in the building. You're going to do landscaping that is very different, that has functionality to actually sink and store more carbon. You're going to put biochar on. You're going to, you're going to do all these things in the building and the ecostructure and then add it up to get to that level of ecological performance. And... You know, when we first started this, it was an aspiration. It was an idea. But now we've got a, we've got a group of companies. We have Microsoft, Google, Ford. It's doing all their, all their buildings now like this. Kohler, Interface. It started with Interface, you know, Ray Anderson's company. Yeah. Aquafil. There's a university campus, App State. And it's a learning cohort. And, but these companies are, they're measuring, they've already done the measurements and they're starting to build in these ways. So if you can imagine things like the mushrooming data centers, things that we build and we build again and again and again, if we get those right so that they're actually contributing to the neighborhood that they're in. It's not, not my backyard, it's please in my backyard. How do we do that? So if we can change that template for city of the future or the data center of the future, and then that gets built again and again and again and gets improved upon, people say, well, you know, that's, what's that gonna do for an ecosystem if just one building and their site do this positive production of ecosystem services? Well, that's where it starts. That's not where it ends because already these companies are starting to go to some of the other companies in their watersheds and say, would you like to sign off on this? Would you like to do this? And then the next, the next thing that the company says, okay, what can I do? Could I mimic 
natural systems with other lands that I touch. And it turns out that we, we touch a lot of lands. These companies, these municipalities, they, a company, for instance, touches a lot of land in its supply chain. So what if you do agricultural, forestry, fisheries, you change the management of those so that you're deliberately trying to support habitat, to cool the environment, to help feed pollinators? Like, what if you put that as part of your, who you buy from? part of the contract. Suddenly that plume of goodness, you know, you're starting to pull that from your supply chain. And then companies start to say, well, how else can we do it? How many employees do you have? 155,000. They have backyards. They have schoolyards. What if we did a program to produce positive ecosystem services on those places? What other lands do you touch? All the customers that you have. So this is one of those fractal things, Vicki, where change, change something, you know, and what you're really changing at heart is not a design, you're changing how we think of ourselves as a human species. <laughs> what our job is, what our role is, whether we can be a welcome species in the watersheds where we live. It is a joyful, thing to be at a design where people are trying to figure out how to do good and give it away beyond their borders. It's just a new way of thinking for us. You know, that's, as Danella Meadows taught us, it's that worldview shift. That's the biggest leverage. Right? That's where biomimicry is going. Wow. <laughs> I can see it. I think where my heart is right now is that I am, you know, some Fridays for the Future teenagers in my community went to the city council and they got a declaration of a climate emergency. Out of that, the city council has appointed a group of people. I mean, I live in a burg. I don't live in some big place, but, you know, no. <laughs> it's an island. I think an island is a perfect container to think in systems. And so... We're working and I'm trying, I'm encouraging the us to think not in terms of a solar array here or a, an electric police car there, but to think of us as an eco is an ecosystem that we actually we have streams underneath everything. We're on a hillside this town. And so the water is flowing underneath the surface and sometimes coming up, you know. Wow. And so we have we have some swales and and there's a couple streams that, you know, so to think about this in almost like a permaculture way, like, like there's water flowing through a system. How do we capture and store that water in the soil, in cisterns? How do we install gray water so that our, our, our sewer treatment plant doesn't, isn't processing water that it shouldn't be processing, you know, but we just think about everything going down in there. I, my, <laughs> this isn't about me, but I'm sort of getting a consult right now. I've been advocating for a city farmer, you know, and it's just sort of a weird idea. But, you know, a farmer is somebody who thinks whole systems. You yeah. know, they can repair the machinery. They can feed the chickens. They plant the garden. They fix the roof. They yeah. take things to market. It is a farm is a whole system. So, you know, we could call it, you know, the sustainability manager, but that wouldn't be sexy, you know, so we call it a city farmer, just to take a look at 
where could we plant gardens? Where could we plant orchards? Where could we do, you know, pollinator systems, you know, bee corridors? And exactly what you're saying, my, my excitement is, I'm going to send this interview to my community, because my excitement is, can we imagine ourselves as a human settlement in a forest? Because I live in the Northwest, you know, I live on Whidbey Island. So oh, okay. we, we're, we're a human settlement in a forest. Yes. You know, yes. we're little cabins in the forest. We're not a town that's eating the forest. Right. And we still have farmland, you know, and, and, and it's so precious, you know, and it hasn't been developed yet. So anyway, I'm just saying that it's just so transformational that we've been hacking away. I mean, it's almost like, in social movements talk about intersectionality, you know, the realization that there is a force that's bearing down upon us, that's bearing down upon people of color and women and ecosystems. And, you know, wait a second, we're all responding to a pressure that we're now being able to name, Yes. you know, whether you call it capitalism or the financial system or whatever you call it, we know that it's, it's a unitive okay. force. You know, we know it's broken at this point. And I, I think that there's a desire to heal what is broken. That's something that's ubiquitous in life, to lean in to what is wounded and to heal it, right? And, and I, I do sense us doing that right now. I mean, your whole community, the way you're thinking, and you're thinking of yourself as a community in a forest, that's the dream, actually. And, and this is where 10 years ago, this work came from. I was flying in to Missoula, Montana, which is a town in the middle of, I mean, I'm south of that, the Bitterroot, but it's in the middle of wilderness area. And I was flying over wilderness, just like you come into Whidbey and you look down at those trees and you go, you know, you just know that there's fragrant air and you know that there's bird song and sparkling waters and then you fly into town and it all ends. You know, I look at those, those maps we have where you have the gray zones, which is where development is, your houses in the forest, and then the forest. And why are we different? Why are we functionally not functioning like that? The dream was that someday I will fly in and it may look different than the wildland next door, but it'll be producing the same amount of goodness. And mm. And what it took was that thought of, of saying, you know, why are we a sacrifice zone and why are we taking so much from those wildlands but giving nothing back? And then another, another time that I had this kind of aha was I had been invited down to Costa Rica to this eco development that they were just starting. It was a young group of people and they were amazing people, amazing and they were trying to pull the best of the best into this development. And we were looking at this map and it had a mylar covering on top of it. And they had a wax crown that they were, you know, saying, here's where it's going to be. And it was in the middle of this, of this protected rainforest. And they said, the neatest thing about this development is, the, and they started to draw these arrows. And they, they literally said, like, there's going to be all this wildlife coming in. And then the water that comes in is super clean. And they start drawing these arrows into the community from the wildland. So I asked for the wax pencil and I said, and, and, and what's going out? And they said, that's the beauty of it. Nothing is. 
And they drew circles like it's all going to be we're going to do self we're going to self-sustain ourselves. We're going to take care of in here. We're going to clean everything ourselves. Right. And nothing will go out. I said, why not? Why do you assume it's got to be a negative thing that goes out? Right. <sighs> and I started to draw these arrows and I was like, what if you, you know, there's more wildlife that gets produced. The, the pollinators travel and they keep on going and they have a place to be. You know, there's all this clean air and cool coming out. So that's our next step. Net zero <laughs> is what, and believe me, you know, I work in a lot of places where they're far from net zero, right? So we want people to get to the place where they're not producing any bad, but they can't stop there. We have to cruise right by net zero and go to positive. Yeah. And, or leapfrog, right to positive, because you design differently when you're designing. In other words, say in your community, you want to do, you want to do community gardens. But if you decide that you're going to produce excess food for the communities next door, you do it completely differently. Right? <laughs> it's, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's an aspirational goal. Let me tell you. I mean, forests in your part of the world are amazing what they can do, right? right. And so it's like, wow, how do they keep things cool when this is more in, you know, places we work like in Georgia where it's these hot and dirty factories, right? They're factories. We're doing this with factories. We call it factory as a forest. That's one of the things we look at. Big old factories and their big old parking lots, right? And people are in there and it's hot and it's dirty. This is where the social stuff comes in too. Because when we've done this with companies and said, okay, how, how can you make your, your plant? You know, and sometimes these are, I mean, we're working on the Ford plant right now. It's 4,200 acres. Wow. Yeah, the place they're going to be making batteries. In Tennessee and Kentucky, we have those two buildings we work on, or two sites. They're, they're huge sites. And, you know, the people in the factory that we bring folks out and bring them to these reference habitats where they're, it's lovely. You know, you want to picnic there all day. Say, this is going to be what your, what your site should feel like. And they say, what about inside? What about inside the building? It's hot and it's dirty. <laughs> Can we have the coolness? Can we have the fresh air in the building, Right. So suddenly, uh, well-being is both inside the walls and outside the walls, right? Why not? Right. And then the, the other social things you asked about, Kate Rowworth, you know, we've put our, the donut and the citrus, we call it the citrus because we have the social wedges are in the middle and we're trying to fill those wedges with good. So in other words, right asthma rates will go down and, and healthy, healthy lungs will increase, right? Noise levels will quiet. There'll be more quiet areas. There'll be cooler areas. You know, heat island effect will not affect as many people, right? And these new jobs that are created, of course, there's lots of plants that are planted in this process. And there are new jobs. You talk about the urban farmer. The people, if you're putting trees on balconies and on top of rooftops and in the parking lots and you've got bioswales and you basically have a permaculture kind of a setting, mm. who puts all those in? 
we say it's got to be local people. It's got to be local green wealth, not just green jobs, green wealth. You're indulging me. You can tell how much I love this work. Um, You're indulging me. So it's. (laughs) No, it's because it's exciting. There's a new field of design, we think, called design for ecosystem services. And that means there's a whole lot of new kinds of jobs. And one of the ecosystem services in the list of 21 is um, food provision. That's what ecosystems provide for us. They provide food. So food provision. So all of those community gardens, those rooftop gardens that weren't there before, you know, who, who runs those? Who, who is, who's doing the nursery work to create all those forests that weren't there before, all that afforestation on that site, right? If you tie a social good to that and make that part of the, part of the plan, I think it, it will change communities around these places. Um, on a social level as well. Totally. Yeah, you mentioned permaculture, and I keep thinking one of the principles is the problem is the solution. So Mm. when you were talking about buildings, I was thinking one of the many things I can get upset about in terms of, you know, in terms of what we're doing to the natural world is Bitcoin, you know, and and just the, the acres of servers worrying away that it takes the amount of energy that's sucked by Bitcoin. And if those buildings were designed for ecosystem services, so that not only did they, did the sun provide all of the energy, so it's no energy from anywhere but there, and they pump it out into the environment because they're huge flat buildings, you know? So I can see it now. I can see. Yeah. It, and, and just adding that little thing of we're going to go above and beyond and not just meet our own needs. You know, I, I say to these companies, the new civic gesture is not a sports stadium. It's healthy neighborhoods that you help make possible. So this power of place and it, you know, I've, I've been going through the Post Carbon Institute site. It's amazing. And I think you're right on with the power of place, with the power of communities to start the healing, the pixelated healing. There's, this is the other thing I see when I talk about that horizon coming towards me. Were you at Glasgow? Did you go to COP this year? No. Very interesting. You walk into Glasgow, you know, off the plane, and every poster, every digital billboard, Every bus kiosk has some sort of a poster about COP, about the climate summit. And everywhere you looked, it was astounding because those pictures were not of wind turbines and solar cells. They were of nature. And I was like, well, this is interesting. I mean, I figured there'd be a shortage of green ink because so much greenery so much talk of nature positive, of rewilding, you know, whereas in other cops, the word nature wasn't even in the NDCs. Now it's, now is it everything? They were talking about nature positive, still to be defined, by the way, mm-hmm. still to be defined. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knew what it was. What I'm saying, it's a signal. There was a signal and it was very clear. You know, I was with my managing director and I said, Nicole, what do you, what do you notice? She goes, green. 
everywhere. You know, in this, you know, it was Glasgow, it was in November, it was gray. But every, every, all of our dreams were there on display, what we're mm-hmm. longing for. You know, and I heard a lot about pledges to carbon offsets, right? Offsite to buy pieces of the Congo and keep the party going while we ask Mother Nature to, right? Um, there's a lot of that, but there's enough of us watching now, tracking that to say, it cannot just be sort of buying, what are they called? It? I'm, I'm K through 12 Catholic and now I've forgotten. Indulgences, you would buy indulgences. <laughs> Right, exactly. Right. So you've got to get away with stuff, but my indulgence here. That's how I see the carbon offsets. So, you know, not that the Congo doesn't need protecting, it does. Um, but this idea that will take care of our places where we're actually living, our settled landscapes, and that will take responsibility to actually be, you know, be, a, be as biomimetic as we can and try to perform like the wildland next door, where we're living and working and where our employees and our customers are living and working. There's a lot more human skin in the game there Mm. than there is when you buy an indulgence for something far, far away. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I, I, I've been, you know, involved in relocalization for so many years. It just seemed to be where I could put in my ore and actually get through the water a little bit, you know? So it's, I find what you're talking about so heartening, you know, things like transition towns and, and all the good, the good, sweet local efforts, you know, three, five people get together and to do something. I'm hearing too, that the, it's almost like the promise of movements, the valence can be of this net positive, that it's not just holding the line, which we have to do, um, but there is a context of net positivity that is 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 sort of inherent in in our world as it is today. Everything is, you know, if you can say, is yearning to contribute. Every element of life is yearning to contribute to the vitality of life, and it is being blocked. So it's like unblocking and, you know, houses don't necessarily have desires, but, you know, maybe the wood that's in my house has this, like, how can I get back to being the contribution I once was? Ah, I mean, I think we're, we're tired of being aliens on the planet. Totally. And, and to just feel, I mean, every day that I have to throw away a piece of plastic, I'm like, no, I don't want to do that, you know, but I can't keep my, you know, I've had piles of plastic in my house just to keep it out of the landfill. But as soon as I die, it's going there anyway. So it's, 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 it seems like so much about sustainability has been less bad. Yeah. And so this idea that it can be, we can design to be a blessing on this earth. Yes. That everything we make is soil amendment. You know, we give back, right? We give back. And what we're finding with these design teams is once you give them, and this is like you're sitting there with the engineering team that does parking lots, you know, and the people who do the landscaping, which is usually just turf, you know, just turf that's pesticided, you know, herbicided to death, right? So this is a big change. You know, to say, 
well, we, we, we have this nutrient cycling aspirational goal and we don't want any, you know, we're, we did, we did this 140 acre school district uh, in Lancaster in Virginia. And there's a tributary to the Chesapeake. And so it was really important that nitrogen not flow into that tributary to the Chesapeake. And it was important that we have those cycling services on our site. And how can we make that happen on other sites nearby mm-hmm. by virtue of us doing it and demoing it, right? And so that school that normally was going to be just parking lot school, flat old, you know, flat old rooftop, it changed. And the whole site changed where everything was put, where the roads were put, because one of the goals was nutrient cycling and keeping the nitrogen from escaping the site. And then of course you said, well, we were not going to fertilize then with nitrogen fertilizers. That's the last thing we would do. Right. right? I mean, once you start thinking that way, suddenly you're not telling people not to do pesticides. You're telling people to do microbial, healthy microbial ecologies in the soil so that you can have more carbon sequestration and more water storage. And how can we do that? And they just say, they just volunteer, well, we can't put pesticides in. So the main, whole maintenance thing is going to change. And maybe turf isn't the best thing we could be doing. What else could we be doing? And you just sit back because humans do love to try to meet positive goals. Yes. It's very, it's very, very interesting. It really is. And the thing that biomimicry offers is a systemic, like it's not, you're just not taking carbon as your metric. You know, you've got right. the whole ecosystem you're trying to mimic and all the things that it does. Um, we can't be myopic about carbon the way we were myopic about energy or myopic about water. I mean, we, we've, you know, I've been in the green building movement now for almost 30 years and I've watched us spend 25 of those years focused on energy, just energy, <laughs> you know? Now I'm like, can the building create niches in it so that birds can nest? Can we do that by design? Can every other brick have solitary bee homes in it or holes for for solitary bees? If we're gonna put a seawall in, can we make it so that it calls in larval mussels or oysters and it's, it's mimicking what they love so we create a living breakwater? Everything you look at, Every design you look at, you try to collect all of these ecological benefits. How many can we get from this design? It's, yeah, it's really something. I mean, we, we did a, the U.S. Coast Guard building in D.C. And they were also wanting to do something with cleaning water. So we brought them to beaver dams and we brought them to places in watersheds where Beavers have, you know, they have a dam and and then that system cleans water. And then downstream from them, another beaver might have another pond that eventually turns into forest over time as the beaver leaves. So these patches, right, of of wetland that go down a watershed, they clean water really well. They're just a perfect water cleaning device. So what wound up happening for that building was that they decided, decided to design the building and you can see it from the air. It's amazing. So that there are these, this sequence of green roots that are all connected. And they're all different vegetative types that mimic 
what would happen wow. happening. Yeah, and, and then it comes out into the sparkling, you know, lake in front of the building. And of course, all the employees get to picnic on, you know, on these. So, but it changed the form of the building. It's beautiful. Wow. I am so inspired. I just keep everything you say. I, I just like, oh, can we do that here? Can we do that here? Can we do that here? And so I hope that when people listen to this podcast, they have that same experience. You know, not how wonderful Janine is or your project, you know, your team is, or da, 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 but oh, I could do that here. I could do that here. Yeah, right. and um, and this and the software program we use is open source. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> okay. So can, yeah. So you can. I mean, go go to biomimicry.net, and if you're interested, get information about joining Project Positive, this lo- learning cohort, and we can teach you how to use that tool so that you can measure the ecosystem services being produced by the forest that you live in. Right. And then task yourself with that. I mean, it's totally do. It's totally doable. You don't need, you don't need consultants to do it. You can start yourself, which is kind of cool as well. Okay, okay. You listening, everybody? <laughs> Biomimicry.net. Okay, thank you so much, Janine. I could You're sit welcome. with you for hours and learn and be inspired, but I think we should cut it off here so that people can listen and then absorb. Okay, my friend. I want to thank you so much, so much for this. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.